0: bona and Happy New Year! Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Marketing Manager Jim Clark. This is our first episode for 2021, and in each episode we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impression of the wines. In this episode, we're going to visit the pearl of South Africa's winelands. North of Stellenbosch, a huge granite pluton juts out of the earth. In fact, it is the second largest granite outcropping in the world, after Uluru in Australia. When it's wet, it glistens like a giant pearl, and that's what gave the area its name. Parle is derived from the word for pearl in Old Dutch. Parle was the third town established by European settlers in the 17th century, after Cape Town and Stellenbosch, and its vineyards date back to that period as well. Today, is home to 115 different wine cellars. It may not be as well known to American wine drinkers as Stellenbosch or Swartland, but its location between those two means it has a lot to offer in terms of quality and diversity.
1: I think for me, what makes Paul interesting is the size of it, the three varying soils, and then this wealth of almost old and undiscovered vineyards, which maybe went to the Cobb or went to KWV. So there's a similarity to the Swatland with that part of the story. My name is Torell Mayberg, and uh, I have a family winery called Jurstenberg. We're situated in the Pahl area. My family's been here for five generations on one property. And besides the family farm Jurstenberg, I also make wine for a, a winery called Mann Family Wines. And with that winery, we're working mainly with Pahl vineyards as well. So... My family's been living in Pahl for a long time, and I live and work in Pahl. So a little bit about the history of Joostenberg. If I look back on the records, back to about 1750, they actually, in the old journals, they talk about making two wines, and the one is Pontac, which was a red grape, which is pretty much close to extinction, I'd say, in South Africa. There are one or two small vineyards left, and then the other wine that they refer to in the journals is Muscadelle. And that's also a very old grape variety, not only in South Africa, but worldwide, Muscat Alexandri. From that time onwards till 1947, actually, wine was made on the farm. When I grew up, we were selling our grapes to the local co-op. So we'd actually stopped making wine by then. And after my studies and after traveling around a bit and working in California and working in France... I decided to make wine on the farm again. So luckily we still had vineyards. We'd been selling grapes and I decided to use those vineyards and I planted some new vineyards. So the modern era at Jusenburg is pretty recent. It only goes back to 2000.
2: My name is Christopher Tillery and I'm the winemaker at Noble Hill. And Noble Hill, we're a a small winery. We're located on the northern slopes of the Siemensburg Mountains. And the Siemensburg Mountains, these are the mountains that separate Stellenbosch and Parle. So on the south side of the Siemensburg, that's Siemensburg-Stellenbosch Ward. And on the north side of the Siemensburg, that's Siemensburg-Parle, which is our origin. And we're an estate winery, which means that we grow everything and make everything here on the farm. So we try to make wines that have a sense of place that reflect their terroir. And we try to make wines that are in a light, fresh style, something that has elegance and crispness. I think in our climate, which is very Mediterranean, and with our soil, which is very granitic in character, the intensity and the extraction and the structure comes for free. So the challenge and the goal that I have is to balance that and make wines that are still light and fresh.
0: As you can hear, Christopher was outside when I spoke to him. And along with some birdsong, you can hear some of the wind that is so characteristic to the Cape Winelands.
2: I think the nice bit of the wind that's part of the joy of this site is that we have such little disease pressure here because it's never still here. Noble Hill, it's a family business. We started here circa 2006. I grew up in West Africa and my parents, they worked there and they traveled to South Africa quite a bit and eventually they retired in South Africa. You may tell from my accent that I'm from the United States. I don't quite sound exactly like the South African wine farmer. That's because my parents are American. And so they moved here. I went to school in, in USA. And so while they were moving here and retiring, then I was in the States and I worked in the States, not in wine or anything. I was working as a management consultant. And eventually they called me up and said, Hey, we'd love some help. And this project is a little bit bigger than we thought we've bitten off maybe more than we thought. And I jumped at the chance because it's a great opportunity. And really enjoyable and nice to be part of a family business. That was before I had to work with my parents every day. But the the small business thing is definitely challenging, but it's also very fun. And I'm really enjoying it. So my background is not in wine. I didn't go to University of Stellenbosch or a a place that graduates a, a lot of winemakers. I studied economics and sustainable development. And so the winemaking side, I'm a bit self-taught and I'm fortunate when I started here, we had a consultant winemaker and I've been fortunate to learn on the job and learn from people. And it's only in about 2014 that I took over solo as the winemaker here. And so I've been at it for six years now and just getting started. What I've learned is that it takes a good five years to figure out what each vineyard wants and what each vineyard needs in order to best express itself. And I'm really starting to feel that I'm finally getting my feet on the ground, which I think is really good in a way. It's affirmed the estate philosophy and the decision not to buy in grapes and to reflect wines that are only made from our site, because I think it has to be really hard to buy and have vineyards in different origins and understand those vineyards to the degree that we can as an estate. So I think there's great value and there's a place for wines that are from different parcels. And you see a lot of brands where they're buying grapes from different origins. I support it. It takes all kinds. But I think there's also a place and I think there's a real strength in estate wines. I know that estate wines aren't really the cool thing anymore. But despite that, I've really found that there's Strength and power in making estate wines because we have such a close connection to each vineyard. So I I know implicitly which vineyards are going to be over vigorous, which vineyards have a loamy soil, which vineyards have certain weed problems, and they're a part of my everyday because I live amongst them.
0: We're going to hear from another estate producer in a few minutes, but now seems like a good time to contrast the estate approach with what Tyrrell is doing at Mann Vintners.
1: Myself, my brother and friend Jose Conde, we started MAN as a small negotiant business way back in 2000 and we literally named it after our wives. It's M for Marie, A for Aneta and N for Nikki, M-A-N, MAN. And we started really small and we would just drive around, visit wineries, visit vineyards, pick up a little bit of bulk wine, pick up a contract on a vineyard or two and find a market and put together interesting wines. And and that's how we started. And then we actually hooked up with Charles Back. Charles Back is one of the most successful South African or definitely Paul wineries. And he joined us and then he introduced us to the Paderbach Winery, which is owned by a group of farmers in the Akhtaparel area. And we started working with these guys. And we now work almost exclusively with vineyards in the Achterparel area. And the farmers are actually now shareholders of our company as well. We've just found these amazing vineyards, especially Chinon, especially Shiraz, really good Sinso as well. And we've gone from a 300-case operation to a 250,000-case operation in the space of just about 20 years. And I think that's the one thing that we wouldn't have been able to do that in Stellenbosch. We just wouldn't have been able to get hold of the grapes. But in in Paul, you can still do that. The vineyards are out there. The grapes are there. You just need to turn it into nice wine, get it into a bottle and tell your story. <laughs> That's not 100% Paul because we actually own a, a vineyard in Stellenbosch called Liflant, which is wine of origin in Stellenbosch. And then we very closely aligned with Star Condé wines in Stellenbosch. And every now and again, we'll use a little bit of, of those grapes. The rules in South Africa say that you have to be 100% true to the origin of your label. Literally, if 1% of your wine is from outside of Paul, then you can't put it on the label. It has to be 100% Paul. So we tend to label most of our bottles as coastal region, although the reality is that they're almost exclusively from Paul.
3: Good afternoon. My name is Toy Vessels. I'm the winemaker at Ridgeback Wines. We're a medium-sized boutique seller nestled along the foothills of Paul Mountain, in the beautiful Cape Winelands of South Africa. The name Ridgeback comes from the owner, who is an absolute lover of Ridgeback dogs, but also comes from Zimbabwe, or previously known as Rhodesia. And the Rhodesian dog comes from Southern Africa, and it was just a fantastic blend of of his history and his love of the dogs, which saw to the birth of Ridgeback Wines two decades ago. Myself, I joined the company at that time as well, two decades ago initially, just for a year of viticultural experience, trying to learn from one of the best wine farms, which at that stage was just in development. We were already seeing some good results from the grapes being delivered, but it was a bit of a combined fruit farm. But definitely the, the, the vineyard and the wine grapes side of it were showing some real promise. And why one year at Ridgeback all of a sudden turned into two and three years. And after five years, I got married and my wife actually said to me, listen, uh, your plan was to to start making wine. Are you going to continue with that idea because I want to start with a family? So, so I, I went and I did my my wine course and I was so thankful for the time I spent as viticulturist here. And I had a fantastic mentor who actually coincidentally also came from Malawi and Zimbabwe. And he taught me a great love of soils. And now I couldn't imagine anything more fantastic than making the wines from the grapes that I've planted myself with a fantastic team that we have here at Reachback. I think to to be able to have any chance of making really high quality wines, you need to have your finger on the pulse as far as the vineyards are concerned. And um without a knowledge of the soils, the irrigation, a specific site that you're working on, it takes you quite a couple of years just to get your finger on what's happening in your own farm and then after that trying to match the wines to the style of soil and viticulture um, that you're actually blessed with. So it does take quite a bit of time and with experience comes the wine quality and comes the consistency which is something which we're always after and driving at.
0: As of 2019, Parle has 14,607 hectares of vines, that's about 36,000 acres, making it the second largest wine district in the Cape. Given its size, it should come as no surprise that it's also home to a number of different grape varieties, though as you'll hear, Chenin Blanc, Shiraz, and Cabernet Sauvignon all have leading roles
1: the so, and Man in a way, are, are similar, and I think it tells the story of Paul. On the white side, I'm really focusing on Blanc and we have quite a bit of old vine Blanc, so planted in 1982, so that's 38 years old now. We tend to say anything over 35 is old vine. And then on the white side, we also have a little bit of Viognier, a little bit of Roussanne which are obviously more Southern Rhone varieties or, or from the South of France. And those do particularly well in Yusenberg and in Paul, actually. So that's the white side covered. On the red, the big focus is on Syrah or Shiraz. And uh, I think that's really a strong point in Paul. Shiraz or Syrah, I tend to call it Syrah. And more and more things like Grenache. I've got some Mouvadre on the farm as well. And I'm pretty excited about that. I think that's really going to be one of our calling cards going forward. And then in Pahl, I don't have any on my farm, but since so from Pahl is really an interesting grape. There's a lot of old vine since so uh, I think that makes Pahl quite special in a way. I think if you look at some of the wards within Pahl, for example, Simonsburg, right up against the Simonsburg mountain, is actually quite a bit of, of good cab coming out of that area. And then closer to the the town of Pal Mountain, I think then you move back towards more kind of Shinnan and Siraz. And sometimes you define areas by what they aren't, <laughs> which is a weird way of doing things. But look, Savignol Blanc, I would say there's, I actually can't think of any area that does well for Savignol Blanc in Pal. We just don't have those Cooler, high elevation sites or coastal sites. Definitely not Pinot Noir. But yeah, I'm a strong believer that Syrah and Chenin have got a good home in Pala.
3: So at Ridgeback Wines, we have about ten cultivars that we work with. Fifteen years ago, which was an area where they would ask, "You're planting Shiraz and Chenin. What else are you planting besides those two? And since then, I must say, there's been such an incredible sort of experimentation with other cultivars. And a lot of niche cultivars have really found their way and are making absolutely beautiful quality wines at the moment. If I look at the normal cultivars that we have here, the Shiraz and Cabernet Sauvignon, we'd have Merlot, tiny berries, so it's a really full-bodied style of Merlot. Um, we have beautiful Grenache, beautiful Bouvette, and, and then also niche cultivars, Cabernet Franc, which is really coming into its own and, and winning a lot of awards from this area at the moment. On the white side, we have to take real care when we're doing certain cultivars, for example, Sauvignon Blanc, which is really popular, that's tropical style. But we night harvest, we do everything to keep the conditions cool, and we bring in the grapes really early as well in the season so that we can preserve those flavors. And then we also have Vionia, which just absolutely loves the, the hot conditions and uh, with the thicker skins you can really handle it. It almost feels that the, the flavors are not at all negatively influenced by that. They just develop so well as they go on and you actually get a lot of tannin from the skins and that aids freshness and helps aging as well. So those are the cultivars that we generally work with. No pinotage at Ridgeback. We believe from the start that we have classic soils in the decomposed granite. And for that reason, we haven't done any pinotage, but we're really happy with the varieties that we have on the farm. Chenin Blanc is definitely the most popular white wine variety in the Paul region. And the reason for that is Chenin is inherently really stubborn when it comes to being drought resistant. It's a cultivar which just thrives in dry land conditions, especially when it's done in a bush vine style as well. So you get fantastic concentration, and the wines that have come from this area are often winning medals and doing really well abroad as well. So Chenin Blanc is always on the list for planting.
2: We have a few different grapes here on the farm, and I think one of the most exciting recent projects for me has been starting to make Chenin Blanc my objective for Chenin Blanc has been to try to make it in a style that is fruitful and tropical and enjoyable, but has some seriousness and depth to it. And there was a citrus orchard up at the top of the farm here. And we looked at this spot and said, this is the spot on the farm for Chenin Blanc. And so six years ago, I started a project to plant Shannon. Up here, and finally, now 2019 was the first vintage of Chenin from this vineyard. I think one of the exciting bits about our Chenin Blanc has been that we've been able to bring concrete into the mix in terms of a fermentation and maturation vessel. So this is a new material for us and a new material for me. Previously, we've fermented in stainless steel and for reds and some of the white wines maturation in oak barrels. But being in a state winery and trying to reflect our terroir for me has always Pushed me in a direction to try to explore vessels and containers that aren't necessarily oak based because oak barrels are actually a bought flavor and we're about making wines that reflect where they're made. Anyone can make a wine that tastes like an oak barrel. It's not actually that skillful. I've been really excited about concrete because it has the sort of uh, micro oxygenation and maturation potential of the oak barrels, but without the oak flavor. So you get a little bit of development of the wine, a little bit of maturation of the wine, and it retains all of the original freshness and, and lightness of the grape. And I've also really found anecdotally that fermenting in concrete has done really well for the aging of the lees. The lees, they don't settle very well in the concrete, but they remain very fluffy and and they remain very healthy, which means that we can mature the wine on the lees for quite an extended period. And so that's why we call our Chenin Blanc, sur Lee Chenin Blanc, because we keep it on the lees for a full nine months. And that gives it this creaminess and fullness on the palate. So it has a, a light, sort of tropical, fresh and approachable aroma. But on the palate, you get that creaminess and fullness. And for me, that's a nice bit of balance.
3: Another cultivar that really does well for us is Viognier. I think for anybody farming in in the after barrel or ball mountain area, Viognier is a niche cultivar, which is definitely worth experimenting with. We've been doing it since the farm started, and we are some of the pioneers of Viognier in the country. And if you be looking at our range, we do a sweet wine. We even do an MCC, which is the only one in the country. And we also use it as a blender in a number of our wines with great success. We use it in white wines and red wines. Um, especially our road blends. And it's just a fantastic cultivar to with. What you get is this beautiful flavor development and the blossom character, the, the glacé pineapple and, and apricot flavours just a bit of so well. Especially in the last, I'd say, two degrees baling just before harvesting. Then we harvest this grape, really if we want the full expression of what our area can give us. And because it's been harvested so ripe, it can really handle oak very well as well. So we'd like to try and keep the style fresh We don't use too much new oak. We use about anything between 15 and 20% new oak. And then after that, once we have the clear juice in the barrels, we start a natural ferment for about 5 degrees bulling. And once the natural ferment is, is running and we have those beautiful complex flavors developing, we inoculate it with a commercial yeast. Now, this enables the wine to run to dryness, and we don't have any sort of bacterial problems or any other problems. We, we're looking for keeping it as simple as possible and keeping our wines as clean and fresh as possible as well. So we find that recipe for Viognier works so well, and we've actually been awarded with the top Viognier in the country for the second year running now. So that recipe is definitely working for us, and I have to say it, the area is, is doing it as well.
0: On the red side, Shiraz is popular across Parle and makes up 14% of the district's vineyards. However, the densely planted ward of Simonsburg Parle is home to a lot of Cabernet Sauvignon, making it the most planted red in total terms and accounting for 16% of Parle's vines.
3: I think Shiraz is probably the most forgiving cultivar you get. It doesn't punish you as a Cabernet Franc or a Merlot would if it's harvested underripe, And it's a really nice tool for a winemaker to work with in this area because you can harvest it at various degrees of ripeness and you just get more pepper or more cherries, slightly more violets if you start working with stems and stalks in the cellar as well. So it's a cultivar that can handle warm conditions. It loves to grow. So the slightly leaner soils up against Paul Mountain are well suited to that because it tends to just hold back that growth and concentrate the berry size as well and just get a really nice tiny berry which gives you fantastic fruit density. Not as attractive in the red wine, you, you know.
2: I think if you're talking about Paul. My specific knowledge is mostly related to Siemensburg Parl. Parl is a big region, and I think that's a key part of understanding Parl is that you have the Siemensburg and the Siemensburg Parl Ward, and you have Parl Rock, and you have going almost all the way up to Wellington and almost all the way to Franschuk. There's a a variety of aspects. There's a variety of microclimates in terms of temperature. There's different aspects. So there's a lot of going on. And therefore, you have a lot of diversity in terms of which grapes are most notable. So it's hard for me to turn Parl into sort of a monolithic, this is what Parl does, because it's a pretty big area. Here in Siemensburg Parle, we quite well known for Cabernet Sauvignon. There's a lot of different grapes we grow. We're not like a one grape kind of show, but Siemensburg Cabernet definitely has a certain cachet And I think there's numerous reasons for that, but it does connect back to the point about the granitic soil. Uh, You know, this Cabernet does take really well to granitic soil. That minerality coming through in the cab and the structure of cab, they're a natural pairing, put it that way. If we look at Siemensburg and going right around the mountain, you can list off names. You can list off from Talima to Rustenburg, to Placier de Merle on the Parle side, to Glen Glencarloo, Noble Hill. You you have a number of different, pretty well-known Cabernet Sauvignons. And for me, the distinguishing characteristic is a lot to do with aspect and elevation. So there's definitely similarities between all of these Siemensburg Cabernet Sauvignons related to their origin, related to the soil, But what you get differently between different sites and different wineries is different aspect and different elevation. So we're on the northern aspect, and that's the slightly warmer aspect between southern and and northern on the Siemensberg. And so we, I think, form a bit of a middle ground. If you go southern aspect and you go high elevation, then you're getting more slightly minty, slightly herbaceous, the more sort of cooler aspect of Cabernet coming through, And if you go warmer, then you're getting the more ripe, the more black currant, that kind of style of Cabernet Sauvignon. It's subtle differences, but it's definitely noticeable in terms of different Cabernets from around the Siemensburg. I think we try to make the best Cabernet that it can be and from this site, and that means for me enjoying that slightly more ripe character. But going back to the earlier point that I mentioned, just to try to balance that and not have it be overripe and over fruitful. We do want to have minerality. We want to have that herbaceousness. You want to have the slightly herbal, spicy characteristics. We don't get the overtly herbaceous characteristic on this northern aspect. But we also have the ability to have something more interesting than the total fruit bomb. This is the sort of jammy, uh, fruitful style. And that positioning, I think writ large, is actually part of the joy of South Africa is that we can toe that line between old world and new world. And that's, I think, part of the joy of South African wines is that you do have the, the minerality and the structure and the slightly less ripe characteristics sometimes of the old world, but you also get fruitfulness, approachability, the ripeness and intensity of new world. And just balancing those two characteristics, it, it's probably an no oversimplification, but I find it a really useful way to think about the style of our wines and where we want to go.
0: As with white wines, on the red side, some lesser known varieties are also doing well in Parl. Some producers are embracing Cabernet Franc, which is making waves across South Africa, and since so, the most planted grape variety in the first half of the 20th century is making a comeback as well.
3: Cabernet Franc is definitely one of my favorites, and I think it's because it's a cultivar that you, if you can handle it with absolute respect, then it will reward you, and if you don't, it will punish you quite badly. It's a cultivar which we start off early on in the season. It's the first one that gets any attention if needed. Our team of ladies would go through this block about eight times between October and end of December, and what we would do is, we would start off early on in the season at about five centimeters of shoot length. We would start removing any excess shoots. Only leave the very best ones, the ones bearing fruit. We don't want any shading on, on any of the berries. The next step would be about three or four weeks later, where we would come through again for a second suckering, which is just the removal of the additional shoots which have been budded. Those would also be removed. When we get to a stage which we call pea berry, where the berries are, it's quite self-explanatory, size of a pea, then we go through and we break out all the leaves on the morning sun side, and that aids direct sunlight onto the bunches. What we want is while the bunches are still loose, we want sunlight to absolutely um, get to every spot on that berry and, and start working on those pyrazines, which are the green components, which are very attractive in a Sauvignon Blanc, for example,
1: but not as
3: attractive in a
1: red wine. I do actually make a Cinco under this label, Maibo Brothers, and it's a very fresh style of Cinco, cherries, strawberries, lightness of touch, you can chill it slightly, and that's really a a delicious wine. So people often talk about Grenaches being like a Pinot Noir from the South, from a warmer climate, and I think Cinco kind of fits that bill as well. Historically, well, it's a post phylloxera grape. There wasn't much sinso before phylloxera, but after phylloxera, a lot of Simso was planted in South Africa. And it it often got used as a blending variety, and you very rarely found it on the label. But when you look at some of these older wines from the 60s, from the 70s, there's some wines that have really aged beautifully. And you speak to the winemakers, and, and even though Cabernet was on the label, they'll tell you, you know what? We always used to put a good little dash of Simso in there. In those days, they could go up to 25%. I think 15 or 20% of Simso, in a particularly tannic cab, really made it drinkable at an earlier stage. It it added sort of elegance to the wine. And I think what's happening now is consumers are just really enjoying more elegant, fresher-style reds. And I think Simso's time has finally come. I guess Paul can do a lot of different things.
0: That diversity of grapes and wine styles reflects the size of the district and especially the fact that its terroir is quite varied. Joostenberg on the western edge sees different growing conditions than Noble Hill does on the Simonsburg, or than Ridgeback does over on Parle Mountain.
1: Parle is actually quite a big wine region. On the north side, it, it borders with both Wellington and Swatland. And then down in the south, it borders with Stellenbosch. And then on the western side, it actually borders with Cape Town, wine of origin Cape Town. And there actually aren't many vineyards on the western side. Our farm happens to be on almost the far western side of Paul, So we are literally across the road from some Stellenbosch vineyards. We're not that far from some fairly well-known Stellenbosch vineyards like Warwick, like Kanonkop. That's one of the things that's interesting about Paul is that it, in a way, because it's so big, it can be difficult to understand. And it's got quite a diversity of, of different Terroirs. People like to put things into little boxes. And, and how do you define Paul? It's something that people often ask me. And um, it's a pretty difficult question. I think there are three major soil types. There's granite up against the mountains. There's more shale on the hillsides. And then right on the riverbanks, you get quite a bit of sandstone. And those three soil types do very different things. I think the granite character of our soil is absolutely
2: A really key thing about our wines. I think that if you look at the Siemensberg, it's very distinctly a giant granite rock. It's a huge granite edifice. And when you start to think about how it's formed, you can start to think about how our vineyard soils also have formed. It's just decomposition through millions and millions of years. So you have from the solid granite up at the top, Downwards to more like pebbly, what's often called coffee clip, which is a mix of clay and, and stones down to, down to sand and eventually clay. And so it's really just different levels of decomposition of granite that forms the basis of our soil. And that soil is, in my opinion, really great viticulture soil. I think you see Granite come up as over and over again as one of the key soils for viticulture. It's not the only one. You have very famous chalk soils in Champagne and so forth. But granite is famous for wines that have structure and have minerality. And I think that's really the defining character of our wines because of that soil.
1: I think what's interesting about clay is most of our rain is in winter, typical Mediterranean climate, and the clay acts as this giant sponge, so it can hold water and then slowly release it through the summer. So, I think from a, like a physiological side, that's important to the vine, and then taste wise, tends to contribute these characteristics that I just described to the wine. It just somehow tends to make wines that are not very powerful, like the nuanced wines, which are just wines that I enjoy. I would say on our side, on Jurstenberg, which is on the far west side, we perhaps a little bit cooler than some of the other Pall areas. We get quite a bit of wind coming in from the Table Bay side as well as from the False Bay side. We tend to ripen a little bit later. So a lot of Pall, the grapes ripen during February and we more late Feb through to mid-March, and we actually even make a Botrytis wine, so it gets pretty moist as we get into autumn at Jusenburg.
3: Ridgeback Wines, we're nestled along the foothills of Palm Mountain, which is a fantastic site. We have these old decomposed granite soils, really well-drained, and then we're also very fortunate to have an abundance of irrigation water. So it really enables you to be able to get the most concentration out of your fruit without stressing it. We can manipulate our vines and our shoots just perfectly We have the tiniest berries. And then when it comes to ripening as well, we're able to give our grapes good enough hang time to ripen the tannins, which is actually the really important bit. So from the viticultural side, we're very fortunate to be located where we are. And then also, I think around Palm Mountain, there are numerous other farms which are in in similarly great areas. And that's the very amazing thing about being in the Cape Wine is that you've got such variations over very small distances. So you can really express yourself and have a real identity of your own wines on your own site. So the Paul region and specifically Palm Mountain, we have an abundance of sunlight here. We have absolutely no problems with ripening our grapes. As a matter of fact, we, we're always countering it. So we want to make sure that we have good sunlight early on, on our bunches and on our berries. For example, if we're looking at the Bordeaux red varieties, to be able to break down any of the pyrazines, which sometimes if the temperatures are, are quite high and your sugars really raise up, you don't have the ripening of tannin. So we're looking for those beautiful, supple, ripe tannins, and that only comes from really early um, and consistent manipulation of your vineyards during about seven or eight manipulations per block that we do.
0: We've talked about old vines in a previous episode, and with 2,259 hectares of vines over the age of 20 and almost 900 over the age of 35, Parle is definitely part of that story.
3: I think one of the exciting things happening in the afterparle area or the Parle area is not so much new cultivars being planted, but rather really preserving the old ones and trying to find These old vines, which are 35 and 40 years plus, which are really concentrated. At that stage, the vines are in such balance. The fruit is just fantastic. The acidity is stable. The color is stable. And the yields are so low that the intensity is really there. So I think a lot of work that is being done in our area is actually just to preserve old vineyards and look after them as well as we can and stop farming for 25 years. We're looking to farm for 45 and 50 years from a block. So that's really exciting for us all at this stage. (laughs)
1: Die Achteros <laughs> blank That's an interesting story. So there's this Afrikaans saying, which is Achteros, kom work in kraal. So Achteros is the hind ox. And the saying means that the, the hind ox in a team will also get there eventually. This harks back to the days when they used oxen to pull plows and wagons. And the hind ox would always be the smallest or the youngest ox. And as it got stronger and more experienced, it worked its way to the front of the team. So the saying means you could be a little bit slow in the beginning, uh, a little bit inexperienced, but just carry on working at it and eventually you'll master your craft. You'll get there. And the vineyard that we used to make this wine was planted in 1982. For the first about 25 years, we sold grapes to the local co-op. We just thought it was a pretty ordinary vineyard. And as the vineyard got older, we realized actually these are pretty good grapes. And eventually when the vineyard turned 34, we made a single vineyard wine out of it. And now the vineyard is 38 years old. What I like about the wine is these vineyards are planted in duplex soils, so very clay-rich soils. And that's another thing you actually find in Paul. There's quite a bit of clay, especially when you move away from the mountains. And the vines are, are quite small. They really struggle. And the wine is always quite a delicate style. It's not an overpowering wine. It's almost Loire-like. It's got a little bit of that sort of baked apple, a little bit of what I term like a slightly kind of chalky character to it. There's little beeswax nuances that come through. Anyway, we fermented in a combination of older barrels and concrete eggs. And yeah, that's one of my favorite wines in the Joostenberg lineup. And I often think actually, if you compare Paul to the Swatland, a lot of the conditions aren't that much different. The ripening period is more or less the same. There's quite a bit of old vine stock in Paul as well as in the Swatland. And everybody talks about the, the treasure trove of old vines in the Swatland. But that is actually also true for Paul. And I think a lot of the grapes that do well in Swatland also do well in Paul. I think Paul Mountain itself actually shares quite a bit of qualities with Paderbach. And uh, the Fur paderbach region, which is part of the Paul appellation, actually crosses the middle of Paderbach. So wineries like Fondelen and Scali, which are both Fuhr-Paderbach, they are a wine of origin Pahl, and some of their neighbors would be Swatland. So there's quite a bit of crossover.
0: A number of producers in Pahl are turning toward organic winemaking. Jostenberg was one of the pioneers in this regard, turning to organics at the same time as they made the return to winemaking.
1: People often ask me why I went organic and I don't really have sort of one decisive moment that I can remember. I think I've always liked to really think quite deeply about what I'm doing and philosophy was one of my majors at university so (laughs) sometimes I, I can almost overthink things but it just felt like it was the right thing to do. Obviously I want to do my bit to improve the soil and improve the environment but I'd also tasted a lot of wine, a lot of European wine especially from Burgundy, from Alsace, from all over the place, even German wines that were either organic or biodynamic. And there just seemed to be a sort of a sense of purity in many of these wines. So that's how I got into the whole thing.
2: We're in the process of our conversion to organic viticulture. This is a big project for us right now. It's a three-year conversion period. And at the end of that, we'll make certified organic wine according to European and United States standards, which is really exciting and it's a continuation of our strategy of environmental sustainability. I think as an estate winery, sustainability is really a core part of what we do because we grow the grapes in the same site year after year and decade after decade. Sustainability has to play a part of our whole strategy and philosophy because the soil and the carrying capacity and the environmental balance of the land is what we rely on to produce our wines year in and year out. So we've always really felt that environmental sustainability is very important. I'm a huge believer in trying to make the wines in an environmentally sustainable way as possible. And we, we decided to take the change and take the plunge to move to organic viticulture simply because it seemed like the natural progression. We had already eliminated pesticides, insecticides, that kind of thing. We were already using cover crop and organic fertilizers and trying to use nature to help us. And so I wanted to have something to point to, to say, this is a wine that you can have confidence in as sustainably made. And so that's where the conversion to organic took place. And that's a major, the major difference, the change that we're undertaking now is primarily around elimination of herbicides, you know, glyphosate. Eliminating that is the last step in the sort of long transition into organic. The, the conversion period is three years, but I didn't want to be highly chemically dependent right up until the conversion. I wanted to make sure that we were operating organic or as close to organic as possible prior to even beginning a certification process so that we can be assured that we actually can do it. We don't want to engage in something that we're not confident is going to be a success. It's a good mark of wineries that care about soil health. And ultimately, we have to acknowledge that some conventional or industrial agricultural practices are going to be difficult to sustain, especially as we decarbonize the economy and there's still a lot of problems to resolve. There's issues of carbon emissions inorganic because you have to do more sprays and that can result in higher diesel usage and so forth. I think it's part of a journey. It never ends. Once we're certified organic, there's going to be new challenges. And even organic standards have places where... You need to be very careful, and copper usage, for example, is a challenge sometimes in organic viticulture because copper, for conventional antifungal, you spray a systemic antifungal, and that can be sprayed less often, and it's quite effective. Versus with organics, you spray copper and sulfur, and you need to spray it more often. And of course, copper is a heavy metal So you have the issue of copper buildup in the soil, which has to be carefully managed. What I've learned is that if you ask 100 people how to farm, they get 100 different answers. And you really just have to be clear-eyed about what the impacts of your actions are. And you have to be really analytical and evidence-based about how you go about choosing what to do. There's no action that has zero impact. There's no such thing as zero impact living. Our existence is an impact, but how do we manage it for sustainability for the long run beyond our lifetimes into the future? That's, I think, a question that everybody has to ask themselves and i think everyone is asking themselves and i think that's part of the reason why there's so much interest in organic and sustainability carbon neutrality and so forth is that we're all asking the same question and maybe there's different answers to it but that's okay it's, it's important that everybody be asking the question and be striving towards sustainability in their own way
1: every area has its challenges we are very lucky in that we have very low pressure from pests It's a Mediterranean climate, so we have a lot of sunshine and a lot of wind during summer. And uh, we tend not to have massive problems with pests. We do have a little bit of downy mildew, especially in the wetter years. But I'm sure that's nothing compared to what you get in (laughs) on the Rhine or in Burgundy, so we can't complain about that. The one problem we do actually have is weed control. So our winters are relatively mild. They barely drop below freezing point which means that going into spring, you have massive amounts of cover crop and weeds in the vineyards. You literally walk into the vineyards after winter and sometimes you can hardly see your vines. So weed control is, is really difficult when you're not using herbicides. I sometimes look at agriculture and, and a lot of my neighbors who might farm or do farm conventionally and without weed killer, a lot of it just wouldn't be possible. It's, it's really backbreaking work to remove weeds by hand. So I think that's our biggest problem really, it's just managing the weeds and if you don't have some kind of effective management of weeds later on in summer when it's really dry there's just too much competition for the vines so we went through a period in the early days where our vines got smaller and smaller which in some sense is quite nice you don't want over vigorous vines but at the same time you don't want your vines to stress too much
2: i think if we try to place Siemensburg Parle and Parle in the context of South African wine. Parle is really at the heart of the South African wine industry. When we look at the history of South African wine, the KWV and Niederberg and some of the, the really historic brands, their homes are here. And so we're, we're really in the heart of the winelands. In Siemensburg Parle, we're really at a confluence between Stellenbosch, Franschhoek, and Parle. So if I drive 15 minutes in three directions, I'll end up in Franchuk or Stellenbosch or Parle. And so we're very proudly origin Parle based on our aspect and the wine of origin. We're just really right in the middle of the Cape Winelands. And I think when you compare Parle to other regions, I see that Parle has a lot of diversity and has a lot of history to it. And wines that I think span a lot of different styles. You get the more new world producers, you have the more old school people. It's a big and diverse region, and I think that that's a cool thing. And with South Africa, I think that diversity and having different styles and different regions and subregions and districts and wards is really a great strength of South Africa and the South African wine industry. I've seen certain countries get pigeonholed into a certain grape and mass production of a certain variety of wine driven by commercial concerns. And to me, those countries have had great kind of success, but I think it's not necessarily the best platform for long-term sustainable success. I think that our strength in South Africa, in our diversity of regions and our diversity of styles is going to be harder to explain to people, to be honest, because the average consumer may not understand the difference between Siemensburg-Parl and Siemensburg-Stellenbosch. But as soon as you get somebody hooked on the regionality and the difference between these different areas and different styles, you've opened their eyes to a whole world that they can explore as opposed to one monolithic grape or style. And so there's great strength in our diversity, and that's why I think Parle is a cool region.
0: We always like to take a moment and talk to a U.S. sommelier to get their impression of the wines when we do these podcasts, and for this episode, I've turned to Eric Latshaw out in Los Angeles. Eric is a certified sommelier who also makes a little wine on the side, and he's worked for a number of top spots in Los Angeles. Currently, he's running the list at a wine bar focused on natural wine in Santa Monica, Now, Eric, you came over to South Africa in 2019
4: as part of the Sommelier Cup group. Was that your first trip to the country? Yeah, I'd never been there before. And while I would like to be there again soon, haven't made it since. (laughs) It's only been a year, and it hasn't been a good year for (laughs) travel, but hopefully we'll
0: get you back there too. So what did you know about South African wines going into the
4: trip then? You don't really see a whole lot of them in California. Unfortunately, I think that we compete with them in a similar space with our wines in California, the ones we make. And so it's sometimes a difficult position to ask people to support some other country's industry when you can get something adjacent in California. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yep. Yeah, fair enough. But along those lines, a lot of premium
0: California wines have gotten more and more expensive. And oftentimes South African wines can offer... A
4: good value for a similar variety. Do you you find that to be the case? Oh, totally. 100% agree with that. Once I had experienced some of them, I realized what good deals we could be having if we brought in more of their (laughs) (laughs) wines. I just honestly didn't know a whole lot about them prior to going.
0: We spent a whole day in Parle. We were on the north side of Parle Rock tasting with a number of producers. And they really showed off a focus on two varieties on that day, which was Shiraz and Chenin Blanc. Do you think those were logical choices for the area based on what you tasted?
4: I would say one of the big surprises for me is I went into the trip thinking I'm going to have a lot of Chenin Blanc and maybe I'll have a lot of cab blends. But that was a really revelatory day for me in terms of the Shiraz because I wasn't aware that they were making so much of it there. I wasn't aware that they were making a lot of it in the parl, and I wasn't aware of how good they were going to be. That was one of the grapes I was consistently impressed by. So that was a, a great day in terms of that, yeah. <laughs> and the shen was no surprise. But mm-hmm. the shiraz was a little surprise.
0: All right. Was there a particular style to South African shiraz that you noticed or to parl shiraz that seemed to represent
4: the area? I would say in general, they seemed to me more often to be of that really reductive, smoky, meaty, like braai-styled drawers. But the ones in the parlour, I found, had a little bit more polish and a mm-hmm. little more freshness and a little more florality, almost, one might say. Okay. Yeah. So this is not a style, and I
0: realize, of course, that things have changed a lot in Australia But Mm -hmm. I think we long have a reputation of Australian Shiraz being very big and bold and rich and fruity. These wines were not working that angle then. No, it wasn't like a, it wasn't a jam unless it was like a bacon jam. (laughs) Great. I think we sent, I know we sent you a few bottles and actually, now that I think about it, we're no Shiraz among them. So we've
4: talked (laughs) about that. That's not entirely true, actually. Oh, Um, you're right, you're right. The black pearl you sent me was, they sent them about 27% Syrah. I think they use Syrah on the words uh, and 73% cab. But boy, oh boy, that was Syrah. That was very Syrah-y for, I usually find only takes a little bit of cab to dominate a blend, but this one was really notably Shiraz Syrah.
0: Okay. Yeah. So it's funny. I mentioned Australia and here we have a, a blend that's often associated with Australia, that Shiraz cab combination. You, you said it's very Shirazi. Does it fit the bacon jam profile that you're talking about? Then,
4: yeah, yeah, that was that really brought me back there. <laughs> it was only a 2019 vintage, so crazy young, but uh, yeah, definitely was already showing a lot. Okay, good. And do you think it'll open up over the next few years? Yeah, all of the wines that you sent me, I would open one, and then uh, I would drink half of it the first day and half the second day. Over a a series of a week. And all of them really distinctly changed over each of those days. In a good way, oftentimes, yeah. That wine actually
0: does have an American connection because Mary Lou Nash is from the U.S. Mm -hmm. And her father retired over there and said, why don't you come join me? We've got some vineyards on the property. And that was the the birth of their brand.
4: Seems like there's a good amount of Americans making
0: wine over there. Yeah, American women in in particular, I think. You have Samantha O'Keefe, Ginny Poval at Botanica. Zelma Long with Fonte uh, also in Pearl. So that's a quote-unquote unconventional blend with the Cab and Shiraz together. But then you've got the Baxberg, which is more of your classic Bordeaux-style blend.
4: That's right, yeah. A pretty Malbec-heavy Bordeaux-style blend, but yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually, I think I liked it more than the Black Pearl, just because the Black Pearl was so fleshy that I was, like, looking for some fruit. And the, the Baxberg initially i thought it wasn't going to be very fruity either it was like a lot of earthy but for me specifically it smelled like just when it's starting to rain and there's gerosol or whatever it's like that like petrol coming off the earth but also Mm -hmm. like rockiness but the second day really opened it up into the flowers and the fruit i never got a distinct malbec vibe because i think of malbec and i think of that very jammy
0: Mm
4: -hmm. style more classic bordeaux
0: okay Yeah, now this is labeled wine of origin Parle, but the fruit uh, from the estate is on the Simonsburg, which is getting close to Stellenbosch, and it's definitely more of a cab-centric area within Parle. Or, I should say in this context, a Bordeaux variety.
4: Yeah, 50% cab, I think that's
0: it. Yeah. Before we go to talk about the rosé... In the context we were talking, comparing these to California wines earlier, are these wines are going to be easily understood or accessible for people who are used to California wines?
4: I think they would like to position themselves this way, and I think they would be accurate to do okay. is that they are like that bridge between the new and the old world. Alcohols weren't very high. They're like 13%. 14 and a half, I think, for the black pearl. So the alcohols weren't crazy. There was some fruit, there was some earth, and they're a good middle ground. Okay. So that's uh, a classic sommelier cliff
0: notes for South African wine. So I guess it holds true. That's good.
4: Yeah. Everybody wants to position themselves that way, so it's nice when they are. Yeah. <laughs> <You're> like <laughs> Oregon, and you're like, oh, we're like California meets Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody wants to be in between, which is weird. You'd think somebody would want to be like an outlier. They'd want to be like really, we are our own thing, doing but no. Yeah.
0: One of the challenges
4: of wine is you always have to explain it in relationship to other wines. I guess that's like a lot of things. It's like when a movie says, oh, we're Pirates of the Caribbean meets Men in Black. I don't know (laughs) what movie that is, but it's like that sort of idea. Now that I think about it, that'd be a pretty... Yeah,
0: I think some producers just scribbled that down somewhere. If we ever get back into movie theaters, we'll go see that one. Right, yeah. All right. And then a final wine actually comes from one of Baxters' neighbors, and that's Noble Hill. And now Mm -hmm. we're going not to Shiraz, but to another Rhone variety, Morved, but here done as a rosé. How was this tasting? Let me ask you, because I don't recall drinking a lot of Mouved when I was there. Is that a grape that they grow a whole lot of there? It's not. It's less than 1% of the vineyards, but it's definitely one that in Parle and in Swartland in particular... They're starting to take more of an interest in, you know, largely as a blending agent, but it's funny. There's, I think two or three, three wineries in a row in this Simonsburg, Parle area mm-hmm. where they're using Morved for their rose
4: in particular. Ah, oh, okay. I have a weird relationship with rose working in a wine bar because I encountered, especially a natural wine bar. There's, there's this whole thing happening. There's two types of drinks that people want. <laughs> they say, what is your, driest rosé, which I think for them means, like, least flavorful, (laughs) most water-like rosé that you have. And then you also have people who are crazy for what they call chilled reds. Mm -hmm. And for me, a chilled red is oftentimes basically a very dark rosé, which seems like the exact opposite. And these are the same people who drink these two things, (laughs) so (laughs) I don't understand (laughs) I don't they realize that when they ask for a children red, they just want a characterful rosé. And I think that this really goes more towards that angle of being a characterful rosé mm-hmm. that has a lot of watermelon and has a lot of very picnic-y fruits, which is an right. environment I think one would often be drinking this rosé. So I think it would be a, a great opportunity to have it. Right.
0: So how would you compare it to when I, mean, I think of a more red rosé, I think of bandol, of course stylistically, can you see the parallels or is it a different expression?
4: I could see a parallel. Yeah, I can see how you'd say that. It has a certain degree of transparency, which I would associate with that sort of thing. Not transparency, color rosé-wise, but the flavors you get are like very laser-like and pinpoint. You're like, I get this flavor, I get this flavor, I get this flavor. And I see that happening in Bandol as well as here. Okay. Yeah. And one thing I also want to talk about with these wines is when I was over there, I would often hear people talk about the fine boss and the impact it would have on the wine. And I wasn't getting it at all. I was not tasting it because I think it was like a fish swimming in water. I didn't realize I was in water. But now that I'm back, anytime I have a South African wine, I always get that element. And a lot of these wines really showed that fine boss, which obviously probably a lot of people don't know what that is. But for me, it's like a very resinous herb type character. Right. Which I got in this rosé and I got in the Paxberg. It's not... Rosemary, but it reminds one of, in a way of rosemary. Yes, so find most of the local vegetation. A lot of people
0: sum it up as like garrigue, but it is a different aroma. And I think you put it the resinous character tends to be a little bit more pronounced in many cases than in the garigue sort of thing we talk about. Yeah. So I thought that was a really cool element to that rosé. Great. So it sounds like a, a good lineup of wines. I'm sorry we didn't get you a white wine to taste this time, but obviously you tasted a number of Shenans when we were over there, which would represent the region very well. Is there anything else you saw from your
4: experience with Parle wines that you think should be noted about the region? In terms of my background with a lot more of these natural wines, I really appreciated Baxburg, we should note, is the mm-hmm. third carbon-neutral winery in the world. Yeah, and the to first in South Africa, yeah. Yeah which is a cool thing. They have a bioreactor that they run off of perky pair. Yep. I don't understand how that works at all, but I've read that. And so find that really interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: They've had a real uh, leader on that
4: sustainability front. Yeah. There's these areas in South Africa that have been around for 400 years. And Mm -hmm. so I don't expect them to be super proactive about being at the forefront of things. And there's these other areas like the smart land that are very on the forefront. But I felt like the Parl was a nice blend of the two, where they, they've been around a while, but they are not the top dog. They're not Stellenbosch, and so they have to keep their eye on the prize.
0: I hope you enjoyed our look at the wines of Parl. You can find more resources and links to the various producers we talked to at our website, WOSA.us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. We finished last year with a look at historical properties, and as you've learned, Pearl has some pretty deep roots of its own. Next episode, we will bring you into the future and take a look at an area that, until the 21st century, was more known for wheat fields and shipwrecks than wine. It's informally known as the Southern Triangle, and it stretches down to the southernmost point in the continent of Africa, encompassing several official areas, including Malhas and Cape Agolis, and its ward, Elam.